For streaming, creating, gaming, and more, power your passions for less during Dell's exceptional Cyber Savings event. Enjoy up to $400 off stunning laptops like the XPS, along with high-performance desktops and next-level Alienware systems, redefining what's possible with 10th-gen Intel Core processors. Shop special prices on top-brand electronics and accessories, plus enjoy free shipping on everything. Don't forget to ask for Intel when you call 1-800-BUY-DELL. That's 1-800-BUY-DELL. Hello. It is already December 5th. Holy hell, the holiday season is upon us. The lady and I watched the lighting of what tree is it? Rockefeller. Rockefeller thing in New York City last night. We're watching it currently right now. Adina Menzel is singing. Uh, she's very good at singing. It's a cool performance. The only reason why I know her is because John Travolta fucked her name up during that award show. It was an award show, though, so she must be good. She won an award. Um, other than that, today is a good one. Today is a great conversation. I mean, we talked to a guy who was a badass in the mafia during the golden era of the mafia. It was... Probably my favorite conversation I've ever had with a human. Yeah. Before we get to that, though, professionally. Uh, oh. Professionally. Because, you know, it sounded like... No, 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 no. It was a professional conversation. Because we've had some deep combos. Yeah, you know? yeah, not with you, Sam. No, I'm no. talking about professional oh, conversation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyways, pivot away from that. Terribly awkward situation, right into a terribly great situation. That's when you buy your tickets with our friends at SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the greatest ticket buying platform on planet Earth, and what? The moon. The moon. She doesn't listen to the show. I do, but I'm so sorry. Unbelievable. Yeah, you aren't listening. I was going to say something about how I use them for Celine Dion tickets. And how was your experience with Celine? Amazing. Well, that's what happens when you shop with SeatGeek. It's an amazing experience because what you see is what you get. You're not going to get catfish like all the other ticket-buying platforms. And also, speaking of the other ticket-buying platforms, SeatGeek goes and scans all of them to make sure you're getting the best value for the best tickets available. So if you're going to go experience something live, you need to do it through our friends at SeatGeek. It doesn't matter if it's sports, music, theater, Comedy, you name it, they got tickets for it. You're alive, but are you living? Go live and experience something live with our friends at SeatGeek. And right now, use promo code PAT, get $10 off your first order. Wow. Promo code McAfee, $20 off your first order. Holy shit. I know. Let's get to this convo. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us now is a man that revolutionized the mafia. He was known as the Yuppie Don. He was a part of the Colombo family. He has changed his life around completely. Now he's a coach and a good one at that. This coming December, this month, he is launching two websites that you can check him out. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most exciting conversations I've looked forward to in a long time. I heard this man speak when I was in college at West Virginia. We went and heard him talk. We weren't allowed to, we weren't told who was talking to us, and it was an hour-long motivational speech that was captivating. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us now, Michael Francis. How are you? Thanks a lot, Pat. I didn't realize that, uh, did I meet you in West Virginia at that time? Oh, yeah, I shook your hand. I'm from Pittsburgh, where a lot of you Italians roam, so I was excited to chat with you, man. 
Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, there's a lot of us down there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Got a couple of them in the room right now. Okay, so let's lead off with your story. Uh, you were born and raised in Brooklyn, and you were basically your dad was a member of the mafia, if I have that correct. That's correct. My dad was the underboss of the Colombo family back in the 60s. Okay, so I watched The Irishman just yesterday, and I feel like I've gotten refreshed on the entire mafia thing. What was life like growing up with a dad that was an underboss in a mafia family? Well, you know, it wasn't only that he was the underboss, Pat. For some reason, my dad was probably the highest profile figure of his time. You know, he got a lot of attention. He was constantly under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement. So I grew up around, you know, FBI and law enforcement basically shadowing my father 24-7. So, I mean, I grew up hating the police for that reason because they were always there and I got into many, you know, hassles with them and, and arguments and so on and so forth. So it was strange. You know, I love my dad. He was a great father. So I always looked at law enforcement at that time as the enemy. So I grew up with that kind of thinking, you know, early on in my life. And I think if I recall right from your story you told us at West Virginia, you weren't planning on going into the family business. And then one time you visited your dad in jail and told him basically you were going to get in there to help him get out. Am I accurate in saying that? Yeah, what happened? I mean, I was a pre-med student and I was an athlete. I played ball at Hofstra University. And my dad drew a 50-year uh, prison sentence from allegedly masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He supposedly ordered this whole string of robberies. And uh, at the time, Joe Colombo, you know, was the boss of our family. I got very close with him, met a lot of my dad's friends. And, uh, you know, they told me, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison because he was 50 when he went in. So I go to see him in, in uh, the visiting room, and we're sitting down there in Leavenworth. And I said, Dad, you know, what's the deal with this bank robbery? And he swore up and down. He said, son, I was framed. I'm not a bank robber. And we got to work to try to get this uh, conviction overturned. And that's what just turned my whole head around. And I said, okay, then, you know, I got to leave school and try to help you out. And that's when he basically proposed me for membership in the family because he said that if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So he proposed me for membership at that point. In jail, you got proposed a membership of the mafia? Well, when I say proposed, he had to send word downtown, you know, to the family leadership down there and say, I'm proposing my son. And at that point in time, I sat with, uh, who was the boss of our family at that time, the acting boss, Tom DeBella, he's passed on now. Because you know, Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded at that uh, big rally that we had, the Italian American Civil Rights Day at Columbus Circle. So Tom ran it down for me. He said, you know, your father's proposing you for this life. And um, from now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and dying, we call you to service, you leave your mother, you come and serve us from now on. We're number one in your life before anything and everything. So at, at uh, 22 years old, I was recruited at that point in time. And that's when it started for me. What are some of the jobs you do as a young guy trying to earn your way into the family, just getting into the mafia? You know, Pat, basically, you got to do what you're told. I mean, you know, look, I'm, I'm always honest with the audience. They say that, you know, in order to make your bones, so to speak, you know, you got to be involved in a murder. you got to kill somebody. And, um, you know, you're basically on call to do whatever you're told to do. And I had to be in Brooklyn, you know, seven days a week almost. And I was kind of at the beck and call of my boss and uh, my captain at the time. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm an earner, so I'm trying to earn a living, trying to impress them, show them that I can, uh, I can, you know, bring money into the family. So I was kind of doing everything. 
you know, and then just leading up to the night when I would be called in to, uh, you know, to be formally made. And uh, for me, that happened on Halloween night, 1975. I was I was made with uh, five other guys at that time. Is that like in the movies? I think in Goodfellas, there's like a candle that's burned and it's in your hand and the whole thing where from now on you're reborn, basically, you're a made man. Is that how it goes in real life as well? Yeah, it's, it's a very solemn ceremony. You know, the way we did it, there were six of us that night. And it was at uh, Anthony Colombo. Joey's son had a uh, catering hall in Brooklyn. And that's where we held the service because obviously you don't want the law around, so it's got to be very covert. And uh, the six of us walked in individually. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration. The underboss in the council area, which is an official position, with his left and right, and all of our capos or captains were alongside of them. So I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife and cut my finger. Uh, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. And then I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it in my hands and lit it aflame. And it didn't burn. I heard it. You know, it burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, La Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your oath. And you'll die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. And he said, do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. And that's the oath. That's how it goes. Oh, my God. <laughs> That what a wild scene that is. I'm mean, you got. I'm sure you at this point can fathom the people from outside looking in in the mafia world. It's so intriguing that this existed in America. And after watching The Irishman, by the way, you you mafia folks had your hands in everything in the history of America. Well, you know we did, and and you know it's what I tell people is that you know we survived and prospered for well over a hundred years in this country, and the reason for that is because. We, we infiltrated society, you know, from the guy on the street in the numbers business right up to the White House and everything in between. I mean, we controlled the unions. We had, uh, you know, a lot of politicians that we, we had strong influence over. And, uh, you know, you control the unions in this country. You basically control the country. And at one point in time, between the Teamsters and, uh, you know, the, uh, the waiters and bartenders and, uh, you know, and everything at the docks, I mean, we really had it sewn up. So... You know, for a period of time in this country, I always say, Pat, the, the golden era of the mob in America, and especially in New York, was really from the 50s right through the mid-80s when Giuliani started to go crazy with the racketeering laws. But during that, you know, 40-year period, or so 30-year period, rather, we really controlled uh, a lot of what was going on in this country. How do you control a union? Yeah, how's that happen? Because we watch Hoffa. We in the Irishman, you got Hoffa in the mob. In the mob, we're getting into it, right? That was ultimately mm -hmm. the demise of Hoffa. How do you control the unions? You just get in top with the the president and the people on top of that. Yeah, I mean, you install your people there, you know. And Hoffa, to a great degree, he owed a lot of what he had, you know, to to guys like us. And by the way, let me let me just comment on the Irishman. I thought it was a good movie. I really did. You know, those performances by, by those guys were always great. I thought Pacino kind of stole the show. Uh, but I will tell you this. Um, it was total fabrication. Oh! 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 <laughs> no, Pat, uh, Sheerhan did not kill Hoffa. He's been discredited so many times, and I know that for a fact. And he absolutely did not kill Joey Gallo. I mean, that was right in my time, my family. And, you know, I obviously knew what was going on back then. We almost went to war over that. Uh, and I was recruit at the time, but I was intimately involved in what was going on there. And the shooters for Gallo were known. I mean, this guy just made it up. I mean, he, he absolutely made it up. 
Uh, aside from that, the movie was good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, how, how can Scorsese and that cast make a bad film? Right. It's true. But uh, I will tell you this. I was really surprised with Pesci's performance because I knew Russ Buffalino very well. He was very close with our family. I knew him well. And, um, you know, he did a good job because Russ was that kind of low-key kind of guy. Uh, he wasn't as powerful as they portrayed him to be in the movie, but... Um, you know, it, it was a good job. And Fat Tony Salerno, the boss of the Genovese family, I was pretty close with Tony. We had a couple of, you know, good uh, uh, relationships, I would say, in business. And uh, I thought that Dominic played him very well, too. It was a good job. Who was Again, the boss? Again, movie was a fabrication. Remember that. <sighs> That's heartbreaking. I've literally been, I, I just said this morning on my radio show that it felt like I was taking a walk through American history class. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it was all bullshit. That's a little bit upsetting to me, but... Who was the most powerful person at one particular time, like in the history of the mob, you think? Well, during my era, uh, really the most powerful guy was, uh, <clears throat> you, you probably know him, Vincent Giganti. They called him the chin. He was the real boss of the Genovese family. Uh, Tony Salerno was kind of, you know, because chin would stay very low key and he put on that, you know, crazy act and all of that. Uh, Tony kind of ran things. But chin was really the powerhouse you know, in uh, 70s, 80s, you know, during my era, for sure. Okay, so you... He, he was very powerful. You said earlier that you were an earner, and I remember listening to you tell your story about the gasoline racket that you ran, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy is a genius. How old were you whenever you started becoming, like, the number one earner for the mob, basically? And can you explain the gasoline racket that you started and how you thought of that idea? Yeah, basically, I was in my 20s. You know, I, I was fortunate, Pat, that I had a head for business, and I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. And, you know, just a quick thing, I, mean, I had a lot of legitimate businesses going on. I had two automobile dealerships. I had a leasing company. I had a lot of stuff that I had, I had put together. But, you know, the real um, score, I would call it for me, was the gasoline business. And basically, there was a guy out east in Long Island that had a small gasoline operation. He had a, a company. And two guys from another family were extorting him. They were trying to get involved in his business. So he ran to me. I was kind of the guy on Long Island uh, for help. And basically, he told me that, you know, he had a germ of an idea on how maybe to defraud the government out of tax on, on every gallon of gasoline. Now, you got to understand, I hated the government at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you know my, my targets, I was never, uh, my targets were always big. I mean, if I went after anybody financially, I would go after an insurance company a bank because they got all the money and they don't feel it and of course the government right so this was right up my alley so i <laughs> said all right we'll, we'll we'll try and let's see what this uh what this is all about so i got rid of the two guys who were bothering him i mean i made them go away i didn't get rid of them yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. i gotta i gotta be careful how i talk but uh, <laughs> made those guys go away and um so i had this guy around me pat listen to this a guy around me his name was Vinny, big guy right and uh, he had a, a scar across the top of his head. He was really a, you know, a scary looking guy. And he was my butcher. He was a butcher. So every Saturday he would bring me meat, right? So this particular time I put this Vinny next to this guy, Larry, his name was, who had the gas operation. I said, watch this guy. Let's see if he's really on to something. So about two weeks later, you know, we started a new company, opened up an office. Two weeks later, he comes to me on a Saturday and he's got this box on his shoulder. So I opened the door and I said, hey, what are you doing with all this meat? What are we having a party? I don't know about it. He said to me, no, chief, it ain't meat. Come in the kitchen. So we go in the kitchen. He puts the box down on a table, opens it up. And he said, this is the first week's take in the gas business. 
was $320,000. Hello! <laughs> yeah. Smelled like gasoline. Smelled up the whole house. I didn't care, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, so he really caught my attention, and we grew that 320 over a seven, eight-year period to, you know, between 8 and $10 million a week that we were bringing in. You know, and I had, I had over 350 gas stations I either owned or operated, and then I had 18 companies that were licensed to collect tax on every gallon of gasoline. So we really had it going on for quite some time. You know, I recruited the Russians from Brighton Beach. They were my partners. They had a number of uh, unbranded stations at that point. So we had a pretty big operation up and down the East Coast. I assume whenever you're bringing in that much money for the family, you become quite a hot commodity for the mafia, I'd assume. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, when I realized what I had, I went to see my boss, who was Carmine Persico at the time. He passed away earlier this year. And I said, Junior, I called him Junior. I said, Junior, I'm going to show you more money than you ever saw in your life. So immediately looked at me. He said, oh, we don't deal with drugs. I said, Junior, it's not drugs. I hate drugs. We didn't do anything with drugs. I said, it's gas. I said, but here's what's going to happen. As soon as the rest of the families know about it, everybody's going to want to get involved. You can't let that happen because we'll blow it. I said, so every time I have an argument, every time tries to, somebody tries to get involved with me, I got to win. No politics, no nothing. You got to stand behind me. And if you do that, I said, I'm going to make you a wealthy guy. Well, at the height of my operation, I'm bringing in $2 million a week into the family. That buys a lot of loyalty, Pat. So I mean, <laughs> years. Yeah, I never lost an argument. I never had, even with Gotti and all these guys that tried to get involved, I never lost because... You know, that's the golden goose at that point. Nobody's going to let that go away. How did that end up getting stopped? Was that ultimately your demise, or did you have to pull out of it because of sketchy situations? No, my partner, the guy that I started with, and listen to this, Pat. He was six foot five, uh, 500, almost 500 pounds when he was really heavy. But he always wears between 460 and 500 pounds, right? A big guy. And he wasn't a sloppy fat. I mean, he was just a big, solid guy. Anyway, he gets himself in trouble on another case he gets indicted and in the middle of his trial he comes to me you know we had a jet plane a helicopter we had a compound in in uh panama we were actually paying off noriega at the time and um, <laughs> and he says to me he says hey chief i'm leaving he says i'm not going to stay i'm not going to do time look at me i'm so big i can't even fit on a cotton prison so he takes off to panama and he's helping run the operation from there well what happens there was no extradition from Panama at that time to the United States. But you know what happened? The feds went in there in the middle of the night and they kidnapped him and they brought him back to Florida. And as soon as they got him here, they said, you know, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison unless you tell us everything you know about Michael. And he became an informant at that time and kind of blew the whole gas thing up. So I ended up taking a plea to a big case as a result of his uh, cooperating. So the... If I recall correctly, you came and spoke at WVU to talk about sports gambling and stuff like that. Did you ever have your hand in that, or did you just know of others that were doing that in the mafia world? No, Pat, I had my hand in it because I had a number of bookmakers that were working for me. You know, any bookmaker that <clears throat> can carry a decent bet, uh, bet somehow is going to be uh, involved with us. Because, you know, they had collection problems, so we helped them collect, obviously. And if they needed money, we would lend it to them. So bookmakers operated under our control. So I had a bunch of them working for me. And we had a lot of athletes gambling with us at the time. So, you know, I was involved like that. If an athlete couldn't pay or somebody involved with the league couldn't pay, you know, they'd bring him in to me and we'd work out a situation where they either compromise the outcome of a game 
Well, they go get the money someplace and they pay us back. So one way or the other, they had to do it. How often did that happen? And has all the stories of that happening come out? You know, all the stories do not come out for sure. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want people to think, you know, that every game is fixed when they see something wrong, either with a referee or, or, or somebody, you know, doesn't make a good play. But, you know, back in my day, it, it happened quite often, Pat. It really did. Wow. I mean, you know, you know, athletes had a tendency to gamble and they got themselves in trouble. And, you know, on the pro level today, it's less of a problem because these guys are making so much money, they can cover their bets. You know, it's more restricted to college right now is, you know, as you know, some of these young guys can get themselves in trouble and and they have no way to pay off a debt. But uh, it happens more than you think. Uh, I, I can tell people that. As sports gambling has become legal now and it's getting do you think that's going to help the problem or hurt the problem more? Quarterback in uh, Arizona Cardinals there, he's on the IR, so he's not really with the team. He just got caught up in a gambling situation. It was legal, they say, uh, or it was legal because he went through Caesars. But do you think this is going to help with that problem or hurt with that problem because guys are going to go elsewhere to gamble? You know, I think it's going to hurt because, you know, the more access you have to, to gambling and, you know, athletes have a tendency to gamble. You know, and I understand it. It's kind of a, you know, an extension of their competitiveness. You know, I mean, I like to, I enjoy watching a game if I have a few bucks on it more. You know, it's just, it's natural. It's stuff like that. And then, of course, if you're an athlete, you think, you you know, you, you know the outcome a little bit better than somebody else, you know, sometimes. But, you know, I think the more access you have, the, the easier it is for somebody to get hooked on gambling. And, Pat, the problem is, it's, you know, it's a silent addiction. At, you know, it kind of sneaks up on you. Every guy that I knew that ever had a gambling problem told me they can kick the problem whenever they want, and they never could. And every single one, Pat, across the board, they all believe, ah, it's not a big deal. I can stop whenever I want to. It's, it, it's not easy. Trust me. I'm, it's a very intriguing time in sports with the legalization of sports gambling because for a long time it was something that was obviously done behind the shadows and illegally and things like that now that it's becoming legal but it's not i mean it's just going to be a very interesting time for sports to handle the whole situation how do you think the league should handle it well you know it's very difficult i mean i've been to this year i've been to a lot more schools because of the supreme court decision you know i'm talking to a lot more guys um and i got a i got a pretty good calendar next year with schools and i and I keep doing this because I, I feel like, you know, the guys pay attention. And if you can help one or two guys from getting themselves in trouble, it's big. Because, you know, one guy can take a program down. You know that. Yeah. So, um, you know, you know, the league just has – it's more education than anything else. I mean, education and then, unfortunately, enforcement if somebody does go down the wrong road. But education is important. These people have to – young people have to understand that gambling could be addictive – and uh, before you know it, you can be in there over your head and there's guys out on the street. doesn't have to be a mob guy. You know, gamblers themselves, I mean, these are desperate people. Any way they can look to get an edge in any kind of sporting event, they'll do it. And they have to be mindful of that. So they got to watch, you know, the people that they're around. And they got to understand that, you know, through education, that this could be a real problem for them. You've been that's what I stress. You've been removed from the mafia. You turned your life around. You've really become this outstanding citizen, which you can check out at michaelfrancis.com and also wiseguyswisdom.com, which is a new coaching site that's coming out. You've become this incredible citizen, right? 
is the mafia still around and do you ever have any fear with how you've come out and told stories about it i've seen enough movies where it seems like if anybody talks about it they end up as a dead man you have gone on and told these incredible stories about your life does the mafia still exist as much as it did back in the day or at all and are you ever fearful of your life well let, let's put it this way it absolutely does exist there's still five families in new york there's still you know a big presence in chicago kansas city places like that um, but it's not what it was at one time. It's different. You know, it's not going to go away in my lifetime. That's for sure. But, you know, Pat, what happened with me, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, number one, I never put anybody in prison. I didn't cooperate with the government in that regard. I played a game with the government where I made them think I was cooperating. But at the end of the day, I didn't cooperate. You know, it was just my way of doing things. And uh, I got in trouble for it. I mean, they put me back in prison as a result when they realized what I was doing. But How'd, you do that? How'd you do that? Prison. How'd you do that? Well, you know, just making them think. I mean, I'd talk to them, make them think I was going along. But when they wanted me to testify, I refused. And, you know, it was a whole big <laughs> rough time in my life, you know. So, I mean, I never hurt anybody in that regard. And, you know, the thing that happened, Pat, everybody that I ran with, everybody is either dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. You know, Fortune magazine had a big article back in 86. It was the 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. And they, they featured six guys. I was one of the six they featured. It was a huge article. It was like half the magazine. But they actually had a chart with the 50 of us on there, according to rank and wealth and power. They had me down as number 18. I was the youngest guy on the list. I was five behind Gotti at the time. Uh, Gotti hadn't been made boss yet. But that's not important. It's a silly list. I mean, I always say, how did they make They didn't ask for our tax returns. I don't know how they did <laughs> You know, but it sold a lot of magazines. But here's the thing that's that's fascinating and that, you know, that keeps me aware of how fortunate and how blessed I am. Out of the list of 50, 33 years later, 49 are dead. Jeez. 49 are dead. And I'm the only one that survived. So when you look at that, you say, well, man, how did that happen? Well, obviously, I'm a person of faith, so I believe God had a different purpose for me. But, you know, aside from that, you know, when I left that life, one of the horrors of that life, Pat, and unfortunately I witnessed this during my time, you can make a mistake, your best friend picks you up, walks you into a room, you don't walk out again. That's it. You know, you're gone. And and when I left the life, I said, okay, they're going to have to work to get me. They're not walking me in a room. So I moved to California 3,000 miles away. I changed my whole lifestyle. What do I mean by that? I, you know, I didn't walk my dog every morning at 7 a.m. I don't create patterns in my life. I didn't go to the same restaurant every Tuesday night. So somebody was scoping me out. They know where I am. I stayed out of clubs. You know, clubs used to be my life. I was six nights a week in a club. That's that's how I live. But bad place for me because, you know, I know who hangs out in there. Somebody recognizes me. They make a call to New York. They want to be a hero. I walk out in the parking lot. Boom, I'm gone. So, I mean, I did all of that. I was very disciplined in that way. And then over a period of time, I just outlasted everybody. I, I mean, that's the bottom line. And, you know, they don't have an ax to grind with me right now. I mean, I can't go back to Brooklyn and say, hey, guys, I'm moving back into the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I believe in God, but God doesn't tell you to be stupid. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, and I've I just been very fortunate, very, very, very fortunate. I don't know how other way to put it, because honestly, Pat, I don't know of anybody that, reached the level that I reached, publicly walked away from that life and lived to tell about it. I really don't. Yeah, I, that's why I was, whenever you were talking to us at West Virginia, I think the first thing I said was, 
this guy's got to be full of shit. There's no <laughs> way this guy's done all this. He's still alive. And here we are. Years later, you're still thriving, still doing great things in the community. And, hey, I want to let you know from all of us over here, hey, we're happy for hey, you. Hey. hey. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Hey, I told you this was going to be a good conversation. We're just getting started to a lot of magic is coming. And support for the Pat McAfee Show 2.0 comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family Jewels. Jingle balls to the walls, fellas, listen up. Untrimmed pubes are a thing of the past. It's time to gear up and get yourself the gift of shaving this holiday season. I'm talking about the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. They just launched in Target stores. That's a huge milestone for them, and the movement to save men from having hairy pubic regions is in full force. By the way, congratulations. To Manscaped, getting into Target, they deserve it. I've been talking about this Lawnmower 2.0, which comes in a perfect package uh, 2.0 kit. It has proprietary technology that makes sure you don't nick or snag your nuts while shaving your pubic area. This is revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary, and I'm so happy and proud of them for getting into Target because they've been a sponsor of ours for a long time. And to be honest, the first time I got the Lawnmower 2.0, I started with everything down there, and then I shaved my entire lower half. Sam loved it, didn't you? Hated it. She didn't like that I shaved my legs, but she loved that I shaved my family jewels. And you can do that with any, without any fear this holiday season with our friends at Manscaped. I mean, it's hard not to just shave your legs, though, whenever you see how smooth it goes. You just have, you can go willy-nilly on your willy-nilly with our friends at Manscaped. Don't use the same trimmer on your face as you use on your balls. That's just disgusting. The Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0 also includes the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? Speaking of sweaty and stinky balls, I'm thankful for their Crop Reviver. This product, along with the Crop Preserver, keep your balls from sweating, smelling, or sticking. And these products smell good. Their manly scent is attractive and will help set the mood, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the perfect package will also come with a pair of Manscaped boxer briefs that will keep your junk feeling fresh all day. It's time to upgrade those overused pair of boxers to Manscaped's high-performance anti-chafing boxer briefs. Tis the season of Manscaped, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, and friends the best gift of all, the Manscaped Perfect Package 2.0. Get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code pat at manscaped.com your balls will thank you once again 20 percent off and free shipping with the code pat at manscaped.com 20 percent off free shipping manscaped.com code pat let's go what does the mafia do now Everything's, everything is being watched. There's cameras everywhere. Not, not that you're still connected at all. I'm not saying that. I assume that you get whispers, though, of what they're going. What, do, what does the mafia do now? And what do they have their hands in, you think? Well, let me tell you this. I don't know if you know this, but my dad was released from prison. He did 40 years on that 50-year sentence. He was in and out five times on parole violations. But he was released in 2017 at the age of 100. He was the oldest inmate in the, in the country at the time of his release. My dad will be 103 in February. Holy shit. Yeah. And so, you know, he's, he's still got his ear to the wall. So I'm, you know, I'm still in touch with my dad and I, I kind of know what's going on. And, and uh, you know, so, I mean, that's how I stay in touch. But, um, you know, they're, do, they're very low key right now. You know, they're not doing things. I mean, they're doing the typical gambling stuff in the numbers business. And, you know, they'll, they got some union involvement again. They're kind of getting it back after Giuliani took a lot away or led that charge. 
So very quietly, I'll, I'll tell you what's happening. When I was in that life, we had five families. We had 750 made guys, guys that actually took the oath that comprised all five families. You had a bunch of associates, but those 750 guys. At that time, the FBI in New York had uh, 1,200 and some odd agents assigned to all five families. So they had a lot of agents around, a lot of law enforcement. Today, okay, same five families, there's less than 100 agents that are monitoring all five families. Because why? Now they're into terrorism and cyber you know, crime and all that kind of stuff. So what's happening now, I believe, is that the mob is building up again, slowly, quietly. You know, they kind of went, you know, underground a little bit. You don't hear about them as much. You don't read about it as much. But trust me, they're still there. These guys are very resourceful. You Italians, man. That's awesome. You Italians <laughs> are always going to find a way. We have we have two massive. By the way, I took a 23andMe test. Uh, I, I always thought I was an Irish fella. 0.01% Italian, no big deal, no big deal. I feel pretty good about it. I'm a better chef all of a sudden. Uh, oh, that sounds good. Now, is that, on, is that on your father's side or your mother's side? I don't know who did it. Somebody way back, though, took a little trip to the boot, though. Because, like, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, in order, in order to be inducted in a family, your father has to be Italian. So your is mom that... could be of another descent, but your dad must be Italian. Okay, and that's how you can only become a made man, right? You can be an associate, but your, your father has to be Italian. That's correct. Huh. How about that? Uh, Mr. Francis, you mentioned you spent some time in prison. Were, did, were you treated any differently? Were, were they influenced at all, both the prisoners and the guards, by who you were? Well, I, got a, I drew a 10-year prison sentence. I spent eight years in prison, and uh, I did actually almost three years in solitary they kept me. But, Whoa. Um, you know, I was in the federal system, and, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest. I had a lot of celebrity when I walked in. Everybody knew who I was because I had a lot of publicity. So... You know, among the inmates, you become a big guy because a couple of reasons. Number one, guys are trying to get close to you. They figure when they get out, maybe you become friends, you know, you make some money together. So they're always kind of trying to get close to you in that regard. And the guards, it could go either way. You can get some of them, you know, that just say, hey, you know, this is my prison. You're not running anything. And they can have that attitude with you. They resent you immediately. And then some that are really cool. I mean, I had some guards around me that, you know, did me a lot. I'll tell you something. It's funny. I had a guard around me. I was in Terminal Island, right? It was a pretty good prison. If you got to do prison, it was pretty good. It was, the, uh, it was in San Pedro. It was right on the water. It was really great. Every Saturday, Pat, you'll laugh. Every Saturday, these uh, young women used to come by in their boats, right? And we used to be in a prison yard. They used to drive by in their boats and pull their, you know, their... Uh, yep. Their bathing suit top down and thrill all the guys. And you saw a wave of guys running to the fence. You would have thought almost they were going to try to climb over and hit them. <laughs> but anyway, um, I had one guard that I was pretty close with, and he was in the commissary. So he comes to me, you know, and he used to do me a lot of favors in there. And he said, Mike, I'm in trouble. I'm going to get fired. I said, why? What happened? He said, my accounting is all off this month, and I'm in real trouble. I said, well, were you stealing money? He said, no, nah, you know, I just messed up. I said, well, I can't lose you. You're a good guy in here. I said, you know, I got to keep you around. I said, let me think about this. So I said, okay, here's what you're going to do. When you, but you got to do this on a, on a, uh, a night when we have no visiting because I don't want to lose my visiting. They're going to lock us down. He said, okay. So it was a Monday night because there's no visiting Tuesday and Wednesday, right? I said, Monday night when you leave, leave the door unlocked. I said, I'm going to get one of the inmates with a sledgehammer. They're going to make like they broke the door open. They're going to go in there and they're going to steal everything in the commissary. 
I said, this way, next day you come in, you blame it on the inmates, you're clear. They'll lock us down for two days, and then it's all over. So he said, Mike, that's the greatest idea. <laughs> so the, the two inmates I got, I said, listen, don't bring any stuff to my cell. I said, go in there, get all your sneakers, everything you want, but don't bring anything to my cell because I don't want to get going a hole over this. And that was it. They locked us down for two days, and then it was cool. He kept his job, and that was great. So, you know. <laughs> Oh, such ingenuity by you, man. You, I, I feel like you're the type of guy, if they were to drop you in the middle of a, a desert or a jungle, you'd be able to figure out a way to thrive. I, honestly, I do believe that. Well, thank you, Pat. That's a good compliment. I, I don't know about that. You know, I just, uh, you know, you know what I found out, Pat? It's important to have good people around you. You know, you, you never do this stuff alone. And, you know, I, I think even one of the reasons why I survived accountability in life is very important and i you know i've got people around me that hold me accountable my wife you know she won't stand for any nonsense for me she went through a lot with me eight years in prison you know death sentence all this kind of stuff so you know and i i just i try to surround myself with good people because really you know it's what i tell a lot of the student athletes you know you are who you hang with in this world and if uh you know if you hang with the wrong people you get influenced the wrong way or you influence them in the wrong way so I think I've just been very fortunate, you know, things just break my way, uh, you know, for all these years, and I'm grateful for it. Well, except for that 500 fucking pounder that turned on you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, every once in a while, what are you going to do? <laughs> Diggs, you got anything for him? No, 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 I right know. Hey, I want to yeah. let you know, I was I'll so excited does. to chat with you. Todd, this guy was a, uh, he was 21 years state police, so Scumbag. big fan of yours. I <laughs> really? Actually, I yeah. am. Well, you guys you know, are pretty cool. You know what, it's amazing. I have so many friends in law enforcement now that I've, you know, all over the country. You know, I, I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago. I went back to Long Island. This was really, really a great experience. And um, I, I kind of stayed out of Long Island. That was kind of my headquarters. So I haven't gotten there that much. But I went back there. I spoke at a church. And in the, uh, in the church, the guys that came to hear me were two officers that uh, had arrested me. Oh. Wow. And, uh, and one court, uh, court uh, what do you call him, court official that, you know, when I was on trial, he was there in the courtroom. So the two officers came up to me and they said, man, you know, it's great to see you turned your life around. He said, you remember me? I said, no, I don't. He said, let me remind you. He said, when I was booking you and I was fingerprinting you, you had a, a gold diamond ring on and you left it on the side. And when we walked out of the room, you turned to me and said, hey, you stole my ring. Go get my ring back. Right? He said, no, I didn't steal it. I said, go steal it. I said, if you want, I'll give it to you, but don't steal it. He said, that's what you told me. <laughs> So uh, I said, let's go back in the room. And it was on the shelf over there. I said, oh, you're pretty cute. You were going to leave it over there and take it later. You thought I would forget, right? So we were laughing over it. But, you know, to see these guys, they're, they're all retired now. But to come full circle like that and see these guys, and it was really, it was, it was just a great experience, you know, meeting people like that. And they were happy for me, you know. They were glad you, you ended up here and not in prison forever. Hey, you're That's a success good. story, brother. Yeah. People are people. I, I read where you had you worked a project with Joe Pistone, who's the real life Donnie Brasco for TV yes. or something. Did that really happen? And if so, how'd you guys get along? Well, you mean after I left the life? Yeah. Yeah, he and I have spoken at a number of uh, security uh, events, you know, for uh -huh. actually for all the pro teams. And we were on a couple of panels together. And, uh, you know, Joe's a good guy. I mean, he, he really is. And, uh, you know, he actually wished me a happy Thanksgiving. I got a, a text from him. But we've been uh, we've probably been in each other's company about 10 times over the past several years. And, you know, I had met him on the street, too. 
because I was oh, really? pretty friendly with, uh, you know, with one of his guys. And um, I said to him, man, I'm glad I didn't do any business with you back then, Joe. He said, yeah, you're lucky you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, the Donnie Brasco, obviously there's documentaries and movies about mm -hmm. that. The Sopranos, now The Irishman, where you said it's fabricated. Is there, what is the most uh, lifelike movie or documentary or something like that about the La Cosa Nostra if we were to want to watch something? And what's the worst? What's the most fabricated thing you've ever seen about the life? Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you my opinion, one of the best, most accurate movies. You're going to be surprised about this. Um, but but it just really factually it was right on point and that was the Gotti movie that was done by HBO many years ago with mm. Armand Asante playing Gotti if you haven't seen it go on YouTube and watch it it was terrifically Armand Asante just killed the role he was great everybody was good and it was very accurate you know they went from court records and uh, and wiretaps and all of that and got the information it was a great movie I loved it and like I say you can get on YouTube I guess um, you know, the most, um, I think the most accurate um, was Goodfellas, quite honestly. Um, you know, and Donnie Brasco was pretty accurate. Now, there's some things that were fabricated in there also, but the general storyline on both of those movies was pretty on point. And I thought Pacino, you know, as Lefty Guns, he, he did a fabulous job. I thought it was one of his best acting jobs, really. He was great in, uh, in Donnie Brasco. And Goodfellas, I mean, for me, you know, Joe Pesci stole the show there. I mean, he was just uh, I don't he was shine just shoes no more. <laughs> and it was fairly accurate, both of those movies. So I say, you know, those three would be on the top. The worst movie, absolute worst, was the recent Gotti movie. <laughs> <laughs> so Travolta so Easy. <laughs> oh, my. You know that that was the only movie I know of that got zero on Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> zero. <laughs> And I felt bad because, you know, I, I know the Gotti family pretty well. And I said, man, you know, this it should have never been made. It was just terrible. Terrible. Uh, we got a guy from Canada in the back. He has a question for you. Sort of along the same lines. Um, you've done documentaries on Discovery, National Geographic, and History Channel. Which one was kind of most realistic that you were in? You know, I think the... Um I think the History Channel one was was pretty on point. I mean, you know, those those networks, they're, they're pretty good. I mean, they, they try to get it factually correct. I just did another one, and um, I'm just signing a deal with a big production company to do a television series. And uh, yeah. it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And right now, the, uh, the working title is Gas Wars. And what it's going to be is, is, like I said earlier, Pat, you know, the golden years of that life were from the 50s to the to the 80s and we're going to do it under the umbrella of the gas business because so many you know so many families were touched by it at that time and i'm real excited they put on a great writer and i think it's going to be a great series and you'll probably see it in about a year but uh, we're working on it now nice so um you know but those you know discovery channel history channel they they do a pretty good job in getting it right at least my experience with them has been that way if you need an Irish guy that's got 0.01% Italian, <laughs> let me know. Uh, I was going to ask, what is your, so everyone has a nickname. What is the fav or your favorite nickname that you came across of, of your entire time in the Mafia? Oh, gosh, there's so many. You know, we weren't very original. You know, <laughs> you know like there was a guy, Benny Eggs. They called him Benny Eggs because he liked eggs. <laughs> <laughs> or creative. You know, there was another guy called Chicken Head. 
and we called him Chicken Head because he used to uh, shoot the, the heads off of chickens. That's how he would practice his marksmanship. <laughs> so we called him Chicken Head. You know, I mean, look, you know, one of my favorite guys, I mean, you didn't call Fat Tony Fat Tony no. to his face. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he was one of my favorite guys because he just, he was right out of central casting. I don't know if you ever seen him. But, you know, he was, he was about five foot six. He was kind of on a heavy side, smoked a cigar, and wore a fedora, right? Right out of central casting. He really talked really gruff. You've seen him in the movie. Mm-hmm. It was portrayed pretty well. But I'll tell you a story. He called me one day. He was the boss of the Genovese family. He had a social club in Harlem. So he sent for me. I was a captain with the Columbos. But when a boss sends for you, you go, right? So I put it on record with my boss, and I go see Tony in his club. And, and he, uh, he's sitting out in front, and he says to me, Mike, i got to ask you a question. I said, what, Tony? He said, uh, what are you doing with this gas business? I hear you're doing pretty good. I said, yeah, Tony, I'm doing good. He said, you're making money? I said, yeah, Tony, no complaints. I'm doing good. He said, I got a favor to ask you. I said, hey, you're the boss. Anything you want. What could I do for you? He said, I got these five mamalukes around me. They can't earn five cents. All deadbeats. He said, I got to support them. I, I'm tired of seeing them. He said, you do me a favor. You give them a job? I said, yeah, Tony, I'll help you out. He said, what, what, what will they do? I said, well, look, I, I got a bunch of gas stations. How about I put them in charge of a gas station? They'll operate it for me. And I said, but Tony, don't let them rob me. You know how these guys are. I said, rob you? I'll cut off their hands, their arms, <laughs> just like that, right? I said, well, you don't, have, you don't have to do that. Just make sure they don't rob me, right? So he, uh, he says to me, that sounds good. He said, how much will they make? How much are you going to pay them? So now I'm thinking about it, right, Pat? I don't want to insult the boss, you know. I said, let me think about it. I said, Tony, how about I give him 1500 a week in cash each week? I said, will that work? He looks at me and he says, 1500 Give them 500 Give me the 1000 <laughs> <laughs> I said, hey, Tony, you're the boss. Whatever you want. And that's how we did. You know? I tell you, Pat, you make a lot of friends when you're making that kind of money, man. I, it, it, was, it was amazing. You know, that's... It helped me out a lot, you know. Then I had a, a jet plane. Guys needed to go someplace. I would fly them around. I had a helicopter. I drove the feds crazy. When I was on a trial <laughs> with Giuliani, right, I used to live out in Long Island. So I would get my helicopter in Garden City. It would take me 18 minutes to get in, right? So I'm in trial in Manhattan. And when we were ready to leave, the FBI agents are coming from Long Island. I say, hey, guys, you got a three-and-a-half-hour drive to traffic. Why don't you jump in a helicopter? <laughs> I said, yeah, come on. I said, come on. It's not that expensive. I won't charge you. You know, they used to get mad at me. Said, no, we can't do that. You know? <laughs> what was your name, Money Mike? No, you know what? I hated my – first of all, nobody gave me a nickname on the street, but the media started calling me the Yuppie Don. And I hated, I hate that yuppie kind of thing, right? Yeah. It was like California style, you know, whatever. But it stuck. So guys started calling me yuppie. I said, hey, don't say that. You know, you're going to be in trouble now. But anyway, yeah, that was the only nickname I had. You got anything? Hey, uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. MichaelFranzese.com. What's on there? Your appearances and how they, people can book you? Yeah, I got all of that. And, you know, I just, uh, I did a, uh, I do a lot of podcasts and all. I did one with Mike Tyson the other day. That was classic, I got to tell you. And it just dropped yesterday, and it's been getting a lot of attention. But, I, you know, I'm on Instagram and, uh, and um, what do you call it, Facebook and Twitter, all that stuff. You know, you got to be on that when you do what I do. But, uh, yeah, people can tune in. And uh, Mike, I had a great interview with Mike. And I got to tell you, he's, he's turned, you know, he's so brutally honest. It's unbelievable. And he's really, he's turned his life around in a big way, you know, and I, I, I really enjoyed the interview I had. It was wild, don't get me wrong, because you know Mike, but we had a good time with it. Did you, did you guys ever get involved in boxing? I feel like the judges 
always have a chance to be persuaded. Big time into boxing, Mike. That was the sport that we were really involved in. We owned fighters. You know, I don't want to mention names now, but we had a lot of influence in that sport. And yes, fights were fixed. Guys do take a dive at times. You know, it was it was a sport, especially in the 40s and 50s, that was heavily manipulated by us. That much I can tell you. Do you kind of, all right, so with all the things that you know, like it's almost like learning that Santa Claus isn't real. Like, is that kind of like your life now? You like, if you see something happen, you you start thinking to yourself like, uh, maybe the hundred and three year old dad is cooking up some shit here. You know what I mean? Like, do you have that thought? Yeah, I'm always you know growing up the way I did and being involved. I'm always cynical. You know, I have a cynical eye on everything. You know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but then that, you know, all mob stuff and mentality starts to creep in. I said, nah, this ain't right. (laughs) Everybody's got to make a living, Pat. You know, they got to do it one way or the other. (laughs) Um, Man, you were awesome. I can't thank you enough. I I just, I, as soon as I heard you speak in West Virginia, I was, you had me, you had everybody captivated for the entire thing, just because the mafia is this thing that, very much existed in our world but people that aren't involved in it are just so mind blown by the fact that it did right it's like oh these humans are living in the same world as us with the same laws as us just getting around it and making a living not just a living a big time living and then all the dangers of it i mean it's amazing not only what you accomplished in the mafia by the way you probably don't get congratulated for that much but i just want to let you know you should be happy with what you accomplished in there and then turning your life around is an incredible story i hope uh i hope a lot of people listening learn of the man that is mike francis because you're a you're a legend sir well listen i appreciate that pat and um you know again to me i've just been very very fortunate because it certainly could have went the other way for me and you know i'm thankful on a daily basis and and i will tell you this you know, I'm amazed when you're part of that life, you don't you don't think that there's so much intrigue from people outside of it. But when I got outside and started talking about it, I mean, I'm amazed at the fascination of this life all over the world. I mean, do you know that the biggest movie ever in China was The Godfather? Hmm. Number one movie in China. I didn't know that. And I went to Singapore. I spoke at a big event in Singapore. It was a ticketed event. And when we opened it up, we had 1,800 people there. When we opened it up for questions... I was amazed that I was there for two and a half hours answering questions about the, the, the life, about Gotti, about all the movies, the Paul Castellano murder. And, you know, they asked me in Singapore if I knew where Jimmy Hoffa was buried. In Singapore. <laughs> do, do you? Do you? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, look, I, I can tell you. You know, I, I, I can tell you this. Um, that movie was fabricated. And I, I don't I don't know if the truth will ever come out. But, you know, look, he got he disappeared in 75. That was right through my time. I, I, I can tell you that the order came down from New York and there was talk about it, you know, way back when. And 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 I think I know, you know, better than most what really went down there. But I'll leave it at that. I, I'm not joining the Hoffa train where every other you know week somebody comes out. I know where the body is and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I doubt they're ever going to find his body. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, michaelfrancis.com, wiseguyswisdom.com. Turn his entire life around. Great coach, inspirational man. Hire him to talk at your whatever it is. You're captivating, and I can't thank you enough. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Francis. Well, same here, Pat. Thanks a lot for having me on. I heard, you know, so many great things about the show, and I can see it, you know. So uh, I'm glad you've uh, you've gone down this road, and things look great for you, too. So 
It's all good. I'm going to book you to come talk in here, man. Just because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I absolutely, I'm so intrigued by the entire thing because of, I grew up around all Italian, literally mm. all Italians. DeGilio, Moraldo, Impavito, Peronio, uh, Master Giacomo, Dallas Salad. These are all my friends. Like where I grew up. So I'm literally all Italian. So the entire thought of the mob has been literally something that I've been intrigued by since I was a child. So it's like really cool. Well, where's your studio? Indianapolis. Oh, Indianapolis. Okay. You know, I um, I go to Chicago quite a bit. And I Thank actually God. have uh, a close relationship uh, in Chesterton, Indiana, which is um, not too far from me. I think it's about a two-hour drive from Indianapolis. So I go there quite a bit. Maybe we'll connect. Oh, I would love That'd to. Be awesome. I uh, would be very honored. I'm very thankful you came on, man. Appreciate it. Thank hey, you and thanks much. for holding the iPhone, by the way, here for <laughs> yeah. 47 minutes. Your forearms must be, I mean, burning. No, well, they're not like yours, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, my wife just gave me this gadget to put on the back of the phone, so it's easy. Oh, to yeah. Hold. Oh, the little the button thing. Yeah. Hey, now, yeah, your, wife, your wife was a, is a famous lady as well, right? My wife's great, man. You know, listen, if it wasn't for her, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. No doubt about it. So she, uh, you know, she deserves any credit for getting me on the straight and narrow. That's for sure. And she keeps me that way, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she's uh, she's terrific, you know, and she's kind of low key. You know, I'm the guy out there doing the stuff and she kind of just keeps me straight in the background. Whenever you said you were going to go straight or whatever, I wonder she had to be so scared for you, I'd assume. Well, she was, you know, because the feds told her, I mean, when I was out on parole, the feds told her that, you know, it's only a matter of time. I was going to get killed. I mean, every time I walked out the door, Pat, literally, we didn't have cell phones back then. We had beepers. She used to beat me like five, six times. I had to run to a pay phone, tell her I was all right. I mean, they really scared her. They really did. So for, you know, in my house now, I'm telling you this. I have five daughters. I got two boys. I got, you know, the whole bit. In my house now, when that if the doorbell rings early in the morning nobody will answer because they figure i'm going to get arrested or something's going to go wrong <laughs> this is 20 20 some odd years later they they get afraid when the doorbell rings i mean that's how much of an impression that stuff made on them in the irishman i know it's fabricated but when uh joe was uh, about to turn on the car when all those car bombings were happening, there was a moment there where I was like, oh, I didn't even think about every single time you turn your car on, you have to think like, oh, shit, this thing could blow up right in my face right now. I mean, that's you guys were yeah. savages back in the day. Huh? It absolute savages. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, look, you had, you had to be, to survive in that life, you had to be on the alert pretty much all the time. Did you wear and suits every day? What's that? Did you wear suits every day? I did, yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> I mean, look, and, and my weekends, Pat, my weekends were weddings and funerals. Mm -hmm. And half the time, I didn't know who was getting married or who died, but we had to go because, you know, respect. You got 750 made guys, and somebody's always dying or getting married. And so you had about a respect. You know, we went with our guys, we got a table, we gave an envelope, and if it was a funeral, we went there, paid our respects. There was times when I went to two, three weddings, two funerals in a weekend. It was it was like part of our life. Oh, jeez. Did you dance on that dance floor? Or? <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't do that. Just get the envelope. That was it. Hey, we're here. Thank you so much. Good luck. Have a good one. That's Appreciate it, Pat. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. You're amazing, man. Thank you. Cheers, dude. Hey, stay alive. He <laughs> was awesome. Yeah, awesome. that was incredible. Wow. He was awesome, dude. So good.
could talk for hours. I've been looking to book him for a long time. Literally, as soon as I heard him speak at West Virginia, I was like, oh, I want to talk to that guy again. I mean, now that I'm older, too, and I've seen more documentaries and more movies, it's just like, that's fucking awesome. My face hurts. I just smiled the entire time. Uh, I saw the Italians light up over there. It's like, oh. hey, this is one of our heroes, this guy. <laughs> hey, we're making a comeback, too. You heard it. By the way, him saying, hey, my dad, he's 103. That's how I kind of keep in touch <laughs> I'd want, I would love to see his dad over there, just like Russ and the Irishman, mm-hmm. just like, eh, don't do that. <laughs> How about that line? Uh, yeah, I don't think they're ever going to find that body. <laughs> he knows where it's at. Yeah, oh, for yeah. sure. He, know, he said, I'm not going to come out on the Hoffa train. Or has a good idea. Yeah. I mean, that, that was right during my time, he said. I mean, that was <laughs> insane. The, the call came down from New York, which is where I was. <laughs> I was one of the biggest earners they had, so I'm pretty high up in the family. Yeah. They're not going to find the body. I mean, that is a hilarious thought. A lot of people say it's under MetLife or whatever. It's under yeah. the stadium in uh, Meadowlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they used to say he was buried in the end zone at Meadowlands. <laughs> one just, of 50 just so every single time that any of the mob people watch a football game they can just get a little bit of uh, a little chuckle uh, <laughs> that motherfucker <laughs> uh, you italians oh us italians i guess now yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go part of the family uh, <laughs> you, you gotta figure out if it's your dad's side or your mom's side i know because if this all comes crashing down i might be the uh second irishman who got a ring you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> yep. i don't like the fact that he said it was all fabricated though not all. Yeah, I mean, based on the book, too. So Yeah, but the book is yeah. by the guy. Right. He said. Yeah, the just... book was based on like seven interviews with that guy, and it was kind of rumored that he was always a nut job. So. That was awesome. I'm very thankful for Michael Francis. Yes. Follow him on Insta- Instagram and the Facebook and Twitter and everywhere he's at. He's a legend, man. I hope he, I'm going to have him come by the office. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Do. Please do. We're all wearing suits. We today. have to wear suits. <laughs> yeah. The day he walks in, we're all wearing suits. <laughs> For him, when a movie like that comes out, though, he must just be waiting to see, like... If he's portrayed in it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or how true or not it is. Yeah, because every single time he's watching it, probably with the wife, like... There's no way that's true. Think about what that guy did to that guy. There's no way that that would happen. And that guy wasn't even that guy. I think that's the way he probably dissects it. Oh, yeah. He's probably just like, ah. Anytime, like, uh. It's like you watching a uh, punt. Exactly. <laughs> and listen to the commentaries. Yeah. Like, oh, this, this guy. So it's like, ah, come on. That is not that. That's the way it goes. Anytime a movie comes out, we should have him on. Just, like, be our, like, specialist for that. All right. One to ten. How accurate? <laughs> just hang up after. <laughs> it was like a three, Pat. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank, big thanks to him. Insert breaking news sound here. Justin Timberlake just apologized for his actions. He said he was too damn drunk, causing a bad example for his child. And I assume he apologized to his wife as well. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Justin Timberlake holding himself a little bit accountable for a situation that happened a week or two ago. Well, now let's pivot into my favorite, my favorite sale of the year. This has been going on now for three years. And every time it pops up, I say, how the hell does this company plan on staying in business? It makes no sense to me. Omaha Steaks is trying to give away their damn company right now, and we need to take advantage of it yet again. 
They give this sale. We take advantage of it. That's what needs to happen. You need to give the holiday gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks is America's original butcher bringing families together since 1917. Order with complete confidence today. These people have experience in their meat is absolutely delicious. Right now, Omaha Steaks is sharing an amazing limited-time holiday offer with listeners of this show to get a jump on your holiday shopping. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code AMERICA in the search bar to order the favorite gift package, the gift everyone will love, for only $69.99. Let me tell you what comes for just $69.99. There's no way they're making any money off of this. Let's take advantage of this now. For $69.99, you get... Four six-ounce bacon-wrapped filet mignon. Four savory premium pork chops. Four Omaha Steaks burgers. Four perfectly browned potatoes au gratin. Four made-from-scratch caramel apple tartlets. And an Omaha Steaks signature seasoning packet. And for listeners of this show, a free six-piece cutlery set and cutting board. All this delicious food plus the free cutlery set they'll enjoy for years to come for only $69. 99. Omaha Steaks is a fifth-generation family-owned company with over 100 years of expertise. Omaha Steaks are the most tender, the most flavorful, and you can only get steaks of this quality from Omaha Steaks, America's original butcher. Omaha Steaks are guaranteed to be the most tender steaks you've ever had. Every order is flash-frozen, vacuum-sealed, safely delivered in a cooler with dry ice, ready to cook. Omaha Steaks also delivers the best burgers, best pork, best poultry, and more. All orders are backed by an unconditional 100% money-back guarantee. Sharing food makes great memories with family and friends they will love their amazing gift once again this gift is giving away food and giving away a six-piece cutlery set for $69.99 the favorite gift package when you enter the code america at omahasteaks.com you get so much and a cutlery set that it's the best gift that you could possibly give to somebody this holiday season don't offer this don't wait. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type America in the search bar to order the gift package that everyone will love, the favorite gift package today. Joining us now is a man that I believe should win the college football coach of the year, the head coach of the Baylor Bears. He once played football at Penn State, turned around Temple, and has done the same damn thing in Waco. Ladies and gentlemen, head coach Matt Rule. Hey, what's up, man? How are you? I'm excellent. How are you feeling going into the big weekend, boss man? Well, I'm excited, and you know, uh, most of uh, I was I had on the calendar that we were supposed to be out recruiting this week, so to have a chance to <laughs> to to be in the office and working with the guys and have a chance to go play a great Oklahoma team on. Uh, on a national stage, man, I, I can't ask for any more than this. I've got a chance to be in your building and around your team. The environment, the culture is a beautiful one. All you do is see signs of 1-0, and 1-0. and Let's look forward to the next week. What did you learn, though, looking back on that last Oklahoma game that you'll carry into this weekend? Yeah, uh, it, it, I think we learned a lot, but mainly two things. Number one, we learned, I think our guys figured out, because this is our first time, and Oklahoma's been – at this level for a long time. And this is our first time with this group of guys, you know, playing big games in November, you know, national, you know, game day was there, national TV. Um, and I think for the first half, I think our guys realized, man, man we're, we're one of the top few teams in the country. I mean, we played and looked like um, a big time, big time national uh, power. And then in the second half, um, I think we learned also what Oklahoma's about. You know, they came back and they, they you know, they had a championship mindset and they fought back. And I think our guys learned that, 
you know what, we can't look at the clock. We can't look at the scoreboard. We can't hope to win. That's not how we're built, man. We're, we're a team that has to go out and just compete and fly around and not worry about what happens. And I think in the second half, from me on down, we were just trying to hope that the clock ran out and we had more points, and, and it didn't work out. So I told the guys this week, man, this week is not about the Big 12 championship. It's not about a rematch. It's not about the CFP. It's about going 1-0 this week, and that's what's got us here. It's hard to do. It's easy to say, but hopefully we can have that same mindset. Yeah, how do you keep – because you have a young team. You said it. The team has not been in this situation before. There's a lot of conversation right now about if you guys win this, you're talking about some big dreams, big aspirations coming to fruition. How do you know that that's reality and not have your boys focus on that? Well, I mean, so I try to address the reality. Like, hey, we're in this position, man, and it's pretty cool. You know, like – like, you know, I got, I got people texting me, like, angry that we're number seven. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, uh, okay, I'll take it. You know, I mean, um, but so I don't think you can run away from it. But I think you have to always remind yourself, man, how did I get here? You know, how did I get to this spot? And we got to the spot by being really humble and just playing one snap at a time, one game at a time. And, we ha- and so I think we realized, like, if we go out and we win the football game, then we continue to stay in the conversation. If we go out we lose a football game, we're not in the conversation anymore. So the only thing we can control is trying to go win the football game. And I think the fact that we played Oklahoma three games ago is, 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 is really good for our guys. I think it's you know fresh on their minds. There's a lot to learn from. I know Oklahoma will be ready. They're a great team. And I think our guys recognize, man, you know what, we, we better just we better focus on playing really good football and hopefully put a full game together. Super blue-collar team you have. The coaching staff, the players, everything on through is a blue-collar squad. I think that is all of Waco, Texas, by the way. That's why they're beloved by their fan base. And you don't like to ever talk about yourself, but I want to ask you a question to dive a little deeper about you. Whenever you were asked to turn around the Baylor Bears program, right? And that's what you were tasked with whenever you took that job. There was PR nightmare after PR nightmare, bad decision after bad decision happened in that program before you got there. And then you were asked to turn it around. Was there any thought in your mind that this could happen, A, so quickly, or B, so grandly as it has? Well, um, you know, I uh, I didn't realize it was going to be quite as bad the first year as it was. You know, I thought... <laughs> Hey, you know we can we can have a pretty good team, and even kind of going into that season, I did, and, and it just was we just weren't ready for it, and then we had a bunch of injuries. But you know, I expected us to to follow a very similar path that we did at, at Temple, and you know, Temple we went two and ten, we went six and six, and we didn't get to even go to a bowl game, and then we finished the regular season the next year ten and two, went to the championship game, and then you know won the championship game the next year, and so um, I, I believe in our staff, I believe in our process and the way of doing things. And I said, you know what, even as we were going through that first year here at 1-11, I kept reminding the staff, you know what, we always said at the Temple, our best coaching job was the first year. It wasn't the 10-win year. It wasn't the championship year. It was the first year when we taught the guys, hey, this is how we do what we do, and we kept them in it. And so when we were going 1-11 that first year, I kept saying, let's do our best coaching job. Let's, let's keep the guys engaged. Let's teach them. And, and those guys that were out there that went 1-11, they're the same guys that are out here now. There's no... There's no, you know, grad transfer that came in. There's no big transfer that came in and helped us get where we are. I mean, this is the same guys. And uh, uh, so I, I felt confident just because we had done it once before. But I really felt confident when I saw the character of the guys on our team and the way they, the way they grinded for, for each other. I've gotten a chance to meet a lot of college coaches with this Thursday night football thing. And I'm be honest, some of them are absolute bums. They have no <laughs> idea. They have no, no reason being a head coach in college football, just chatting with them. It's like, well, how does this guy get the job that he has? Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. It's, it's a whole different thing. But then whenever we talk to your staff, 
I mean, it was just such a professional operation from top to bottom. What is it about turning programs around that really gets you guys ticking? I mean, that seems like that is really what it is. Is that something that you get full fulfillment out of? Is making guys meet their full potential when they haven't in the past? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I um, you know, people are going to have different legacies. And, um, I, and I think no one job is harder than the other. But when I, when I sit there and say, hey, how do I want to be remembered as a coach, not as a man, not as a father, but just as a coach, I, I wanted to be remembered as someone who, who built things, who always left places better than they found them. And, and that's true for my staff. You know, I came here and seven of the guys came with me from Temple. Another 20 off the field came here. And I think it's just, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make the you know, ultimate purpose in, in some way. You can want to do a lot of different things, but if I have a choice between winning and or making sure that our players have better lives for having been here, I'm going to, I'm going to always choose our players. And I, that's true for our staff. And so when you come to a place where, where guys are going through a hard time or guys aren't fulfilling their potential and you start waking up each and every day saying, how do I make not the team, not myself, not my pension. How do I make the players better? How do I help them maximize? Then all of a sudden, you know, the, the walk-on that's in the corner locker that has, like, number 123, you know, it doesn't feel a part of anything. All of a sudden now he's got coaches asking him about his tests. He's got coaches pushing him in the weight room. He's got coaches coaching him like he's a Heisman Trophy candidate, and he starts to say, you know what, I can do this. And then it, it just permeates through the whole locker room where everybody feels engaged, everybody's being pushed, no one feels like there's favorites, um, and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you have a good team. And so I just think that's our approach. I mean, you know, we all, every coach says, well, you know, I, I, I love the players like my own kids. Well, yeah, that takes time and that takes effort, and I, I think our staff does a great job of that. Your kids are around the program on a pretty regular basis. You told a story to us in our coaches' meeting that your son was in the in, – correct me if I'm wrong – in the tunnel after a game behind a player who maybe was hanging his head, and you were about to, you know, chew him out, but you saw your son standing right behind him. You're like, well, if I was his father, I wouldn't want to do that. And it kind of has shaped the way that you coach. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. We, so we, we, we were 0-3 at, at Temple, and we went out – this is my first year – and we went out to play um, Idaho, and we lost by a touchdown at the end of the game. And I, I knew we were eventually going to get it turned around. And we're, we're walking out of the, you know, out of the field in the, into a tunnel to go into the locker room. And I see guys kind of hanging their head. And I see Sharif Finch, who's a freshman linebacker, who's a dynamic player for the Tennessee Titans right now. And, and a great story, too. But I see Sharif Finch. He's this freshman linebacker. And he's hanging his head. And I'm about to get after him. Like, get your head up. You know, we don't do that. Da, 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 da. And, you know, just be a typical coach, right? And, and I see Bryant right behind him. And Bryant has the same exact look. And I could see in my son, you know, he had so much hope. He had worked, you know, he had, he had, Bryant hadn't really worked, but the players had worked, but Bryant had dreamt that this would be our first win. And he was so sad, not for himself, but for the team and for me as his dad. And I, just the feeling of empathy overwhelmed me. And it, it made me stop and, and not yell at Sharif. And it made me go in the locker room and say, guys, I know how much this hurts, but if you stay with it, I promise you someday we'll be champions. And, that's what young people don't need to be coddled, but they do need to be talked to truthfully. And they and I told them we're going to win if you'll just hang in there. And Sharif, you know, left Temple a champion and left there as a pro football player. But I think until you truly, truly, truly 
love and push your players like they're your own kids. It's all just words, and that was a real that was a real learning moment for me. That was surprise. That was really cool to hear in that coach's thing because a lot of coaches get caught up in you know if we win I get paid, and that can kind of take away the human side of it. And the fact that your family is so involved, and that your kids are literally on the sidelines as hype machines for the team every week <laughs> is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think uh, you know um, a lot of our players come to us from all different backgrounds, and and what we want we want them all to to be great men. We also want them to be great fathers someday and great husbands, and and people say that, but what better way to do that than to model it? You know, so my kids, my 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 son Bryant, the coaches' sons, my two daughters, they're here with me every Sunday. They're six and they're four and they're maniacs, but they're in the <laughs> office. And you know what? If if I don't put my kids first, then I can never tell my players that it's important to be a father. And if my players hear me, like, you know, make jokes about my wife, and da, 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 then they don't really know what a loving relationship looks like. When they see me, my wife, walk in the building, they see the way I treat her. When they see the way I love her, when they come to our house and my wife cooks for them, and, 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 and they, then, then we're truly modeling um, what it means to have a family, what a blessing that is. And so we do that. And at the same time, I tell the players, if my son's out of line, like, he doesn't get to cut ahead in Fortnite. Like, he, he's also got now 114 older brothers that are teaching him the ropes and, <laughs> And making sure he stays in line. So it's a, it's a good win in every single sense of the word. Okay. You mentioned that your friends were texting you saying they're upset that you're at number seven. Let's talk about the top seven real quick. Ohio State has three Heisman candidates. LSU has a revamped offense where everybody's talking about Joe Burrow, who I think is the most NFL-ready quarterback right now out of everybody in this class. Clemson obviously has Trevor Lawrence and a bunch of superstars. Georgia has what people are saying the best offensive line. Jake Fromm, they have a bunch of studs. They've been there, done that with national championship. Utah, I don't know anybody about them. Oklahoma, (laughs) Jalen Hurts, Lincoln Riley. Everybody says this is the most innovative coach in the history of college football. They've had Heisman winner after Heisman winner. Now Jalen Hurts is in the same conversation. Your Baylor team is a bunch of unknowns nationally. I mean, Charlie Brewer is a quarterback. Denzel Mims is a superstar. You have uh, leading in sacks on the defensive side of the ball. But your team, I think they really rely on being a family and being tight. What is it about this team that makes them so good when there isn't, like, the national superstar on the team carrying it? Because we're just a complete team, and we're just a – you know, we're – we're just a bunch of hungry, gritty, tough dudes that, that love to play the game. And, and you know, we, we've sometimes taken heat for winning close games. And, like, I'm not really a participation trophy kind of a guy. Like, either you won or you lost, right? Like, like, like sometimes it's like, well, they lost to them, and these guys beat them. But since they lost to a really good team, and, like, I, there's no participation trophy for me for losing. Like, we've gone out 11 times, and we've won the game 11 times. And we lost to Oklahoma, and you don't hear me making any excuses about that. They beat us. But – we're three points away from being undefeated, you know, or, or four points away from being undefeated. And our one loss is to the, the number six team in the country. So I'm proud of our guys. But you know what? You, you mentioned a lot of guys there. And, and you know what's interesting? And I mean this in the greatest of respect. Of those six teams above us, three of those teams are playing with quarterbacks they didn't recruit, like that, that transferred in there because of the brand and the opportunity to go there and play. We're just a bunch of homegrown, you know, guys. Like we're, 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 we're a team that, you know, there's not a ton of you know ton of big name players in terms of recruiting in terms of nationally, but we got a bunch of future pros and we got a bunch of future NFL players, and um, they like to play together. We like to play defense. We like to play special teams, and they complement each other well. And so I hope that we go out and play a really good game on Saturday. Not even for the rank. I want people to see uh, just how complete of a team you know we have at Baylor. Okay, and before I let you go, I know you're very busy, and I appreciate your time. Uh, Phil Snow, defensive coordinator, was just nominated as a finalist for the Art Broyles Award. Tell me about him and your relationship with him and how he's going to be able to stop this incredibly creative Lincoln-Riley offense. Well, I think Phil's one of the best of the best, and um, 
you know, he's been my defensive coordinator ever since I became a head coach. Um, he did it at Temple. He came to Baylor. And, you know, to me, to be, to be up for the Broyles Award, you know, be one of the five finalists as a defensive coach in the Big 12 is, is <laughs> an accomplishment unlike any other. And, you know, I was Coach Snow's GA at UCLA in 2001 when he was the defensive coordinator there. And, by the way, we led the Pac-12 or Pac-10 at the time in all, in all the different defensive categories. And, you know, I, he used to scream at me like, hey, Rules, that coffee pot broke. And I had to go make a, a fresh pot of coffee and bring it to him. And I told him I took the job. I said, I, I'm not bringing you coffee anymore now. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in charge now. But he, he, he's a great coach. And he's, he's a guy to me that's reinvented himself. You know, he was a defensive coordinator at Arizona State when they played Ohio State for the national championship. He was defense coordinator at UCLA, led the Pac-12 led the Pac- conference in all those categories, went to, uh, went to Eastern Michigan, went to the NFL, came to Temple. We had a top, five, top 25 defense. And now, coming to the Big 12 and two years of us kind of struggling, has put together one of the best defenses in the country. And so I don't think you can stop Lincoln Riley. I don't think you can stop Jalen Hurts and CeeDee Lamb. But we can certainly go out there and try to limit uh, what they do. And I think even the, in the first game, you know, we limited the big plays. We got some turnovers. And in the end, if our offense plays better in the second half and just gets a couple first downs, we win the game. And so our defense, you know, they played 96 plays. They got a little tired at the end. But it's a great matchup. I have so much respect for Coach Riley, and I have so much respect for Coach Snow. I think it'll be a great battle and, and, an, and an interesting subplot in the game. I can't wait to see it. Has anybody done any Brazos belly flops over there since uh, <laughs> I went into that river? No, um, but that is going to be part of our off-season conditioning. That's going to be part of our <laughs> we do a team commitment week where you have to kind of do all these different things, to, you know, as, and it's a competition and to show. So, uh, first of all, we'd love to have you back for that. But number two, that that is going to be part of the uh, get bonus points if you do it. Uh, get a little deeper into the river. That thing was only four feet where I was at. You have a couple of deep tackles. <laughs> they might die. Hey, Coach. I can't thank you enough for your time and your hospitality. Good luck this weekend. I'm pulling hard for the oh. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I, I think college football coach of the year in my eyes, Baylor Bears head coach, Matt Rule. Good luck, boss man. Thank you, now. Appreciate you, folks. Yep, cheers. I came in in Houston playing against Peyton Manning and all those years, even though we, we, we won a couple times. But I used to like playing against Peyton in a, in a good, bad way. I was, I was young, so I was learning. But it was difficult, but it was fun. It was it was all types of stuff. Um, <laughs> it was a chess match they, with him, right? Because he's literally looking at you in the mic. That is who he's yeah. reading everything off of. So it's like a chess match. Well, see, and see, well, when I was young, playing against Peyton, I was playing corner and nickel, right? Oh, okay. So when I moved into the nickel, I kid you not, Peyton Manning used to look at me every single play. Like, he was looking at me to figure out what we were in, like – I literally got better playing against Peyton Manning because he used to stare at me the entire time. And I used to always try to figure out, like, why does he keep looking at me? Continually looking at me. And then I I learned that, you know, I was the young guy. So I was the guy that he could probably, like, tell, okay, he's in quarters this time. You know, he's in cover two. Now he's in man. Okay, now he's blitzing. Like, he used to look at me all the time. And he would put Joseph Adai right there in my face, and he would play action me and try to throw it. Like, <laughs> I got so much better playing against Peyton Manning. So he was probably one of my 
my favorites to play against. I love Joseph Adad, by the way. I don't know if you've ever met him. One of the coolest dudes in the history. I, I know you two probably had to square off a little bit, but that guy is yeah. So, man, Peyton used to have, I don't know if you know this, and I'll tell you this now, why they were looking at you is a back, the backup quarterback for a Peyton Manning offense had homework assignments all week. That, they had a notebook that they had to return to Peyton that would tell them, like, okay, if this guy does this, then they're in this. And you being a rookie or a young guy, you were the tell, I would assume, that that happens. That happened every no single – if you ever watch Peyton, I used to enjoy this because I, I learned about this because uh, Curtis Painter, Painter was my roommate in training camp my rookie year. So I got a chance to overhear conversations that I probably shouldn't have heard, <laughs> but I was in there listening to it. And then every single game, you watch him in the first series, whenever you see him scour the field and he looks at somebody, it's like, oh, that's the guy they're reading today. That is <laughs> yep. the guy that it's the read today. And it's incredible how much that you could pick up just from one little tell. And for you, I'd assume that you had to be like, okay, I got to get a little bit better at disguising. I got to get a bit tighter. And it probably helped you out immensely, I assume. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely helped me out from that aspect. But I, I took the same approach. So, like, what I started doing when I would watch film is I'm not going to try to pick up on this whole entire scheme. I'm going to find one person that could tell me run or pass. And I'm going to find one thing that I can figure out, okay, this is how he liked to run this route. This is his favorite route, and this is how he runs it. So when I see it, I know it's coming. And so I will find one old lineman that would tell me run or pass, and I would just watch him. And I would know, okay, boom, this is this is run, this is pass. And then I would find that one person that I was going against, and I would try to find just that one, that one play, that one route that I knew was his favorite, and I knew how he liked to run it. And when I was, when I saw it, I would go. And then some a lot of times it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. But it was just like that was that was my film study. Isn't it insane to think that there's billions and billions of dollars spent in the NFL, and it all comes down to a guy maybe offsetting his foot <laughs> by three inches? And you're like, all right, well, it's a run. We know it's a run. The NFL. Coach of the Year candidates for this year, I think there's five noted names that should be talked about. Five to six. And I think, honestly, this is a tough, tough decision to be made. Obviously, my favorite for the entire thing is Harbaugh, strictly because he committed completely to a brand-new style of offense, a brand-new quarterback. He's revamped that entire team to become this dynamic team that nobody has been able to stop once they got going. Speaking of, assistant coach of the year, Greg Roman, I think, should be the guy for what he's been able to do with that offense, both adjusting and bobbing and weaving with that offense. It all starts with Harbaugh. Good for him, changing the team. And it seems like he's connected with Lamar Jackson. There was a moment there where Lamar told Harbaugh he loved him, and Harbaugh told him back, I love you too. That is a big moment for a player. That can go a long way. My second coach, Kyle Shanahan. Last year, there was a lot of hype behind the 49ers. A lot of hype for them. Fell flat whenever Jimmy G decided to zig instead of zag. Went on a date with a point star did a lot of things the hype was real they ended up stinking last year this year come in with no hype no glamour and instead have become this defensive dominant team that has won a lot a lot of games also Salah the defensive coordinator there's another guy that should be up for assistant coach of the year him and Roman I think are in a two uh two-man race for that particular thing in third, I have Sean Payton because they were able to go 4-0 with Teddy Bridgewater, the backup quarterback, which put them in a position to still have home field advantage in the playoffs in the NFC, to be able to win with a backup and be able to win in certain different ways. Now, granted, they lost to the Falcons there at home big. That's going to happen. Sometimes you just run into a buzzsaw or you're not prepared for a game. I think this year may be Sean Payton's best work yet. Will they be able to go on a run in the playoffs? Possibly. 
Mike Tomlin, another guy. I'm a big fan of him. I like what he's done. It's going to be tough to get any votes because the AFC North is being run by the Ravens right now, and Harbaugh is probably the outright winner. But he's been able to win with a lot of quarterbacks, a lot of different players, a recipe for disaster. Mike Tomlin has been able to turn into a recipe for success. Now, granted, you find Doc Hodges lying in the weeds, an all-time all-pro Hall of Fame quarterback. That's going to help, but I think Mike Tomlin's done a hell of a job this year. Love Coach T. We'll take a bullet for him. Can't be in this conversation. You start managing Mason Rudolph for eight games, you're automatically out of the Coach of the Year conversation. Okay, there it is. Uh, I also think Pete Carroll is a guy that should be talked about. Pete Carroll is a guy that should be chatted about in the Coach of the Year candidate. He's the oldest coach in the NFL and somehow has this ability to relate to these young guys. I like Pete Carroll. I like Russell Wilson. I like that Seahawks team. And it feels like they're coming together at the right time. Now, I don't know if I said five or four yet, but if it's a fifth one, I'm going to go with Sean McDermott of the Buffalo Bills. Whoa. Gumpy thought there was a chance it was going to be B-Flow. <laughs> but for me, it's Coach Sean McDermott in the AFC East because... Now, granted, Bill Belichick can also get this honor yeah. if you want. I mean, every year you could give it to Bill Belichick. But for me, McDermott, he cut Tyrod Taylor a couple years ago after making the playoffs. He was getting everybody out of town. Everybody's like, how outside of Buffalo, everybody's like, how is this guy still in charge of things? It seems like he's taking the team the opposite direction. And instead, Josh Allen has progressed incredibly in the, in the last year. He's become good. The defense has become dominant. Bill's Mafia has actual hope again for the first time in a long time. I like what he's doing there. Those are my candidates. Obviously, you could throw Belichick in there. Anytime greatest coach of all time, so coach of the year, coach of the century, whatever you want to call him. But for me, I think it's Harbaugh's award to win. I think Shanahan's in there. I think B. Carroll's in there. I think Tomlin's in there. And I think McDermott's in there. In my eyes, personally, I could be completely wrong. Who gives a damn? Harbaugh's going to win. It doesn't matter about the other four. I've had an absolute blast today. I hope you have as well. Big thanks to Michael Francis that you can follow on social media at Michael Francis. Z-E-S-E there at the end of Fran. What a fucking majestic conversation with a guy. Just telling us about everything. How about his dad being 100 and some years old? Insanity. Very thankful for him. Shout out to the Coach of the Year candidates that we talked about. A little chit-chat there about Peyton Manning from Glover Quinn. Matt Rule. I mean, this has been a hell of a day, hell of a show, and we can't thank you enough for listening and watching wherever you may be. The gifting season is finally here, and as you start to think about the perfect holiday gift for him or her, Tommy John should be the first thing that comes to mind. Tommy John is the revolutionary underwear, loungewear, and clothing brand that guarantees a perfect fit. Tommy John is here to save your holiday season with gifts to eliminate awkward adjustments for men and women. They create innovative products like breathable, wedgie-proof underwear and ridiculously soft loungewear and pajamas that are guaranteed to fit Perfectly. Tommy John uses lightweight, breathable fabrics with multi-directional stretch so their bras and underwear can fit any type of body. Tommy John has eliminated visible panty lines for women and created a horizontal quick-draw fly for men. We're talking about revolutionary stuff here. Plus, you'll never get a wedgie, guaranteed. If, you, if your first pair isn't the best pair you've ever worn, you get your money back, guaranteed. Leave the jingling to the bells and give the gift of comfort this holiday with limited edition gifts like loungewear pajamas and underwear from tommy john plus save 20 percent on your first order when you visit tommyjohn.com slash pat that's t-o-m-m-y-j-o-h-n.com slash p-a-t for 20 percent off i wear tommy john underwear it feels damn good i've heard that the bra 
And the panties are also incredible for your ladies. So go ahead and get a gift if need be. Go ahead and get some underwear, loungewear, everything that you could possibly need from our friends at Tommy John. TommyJohn.com slash pad, 20% off. Big thanks for listening. Uh, use hashtag endgang endgame to win a card to our store and send me something that makes me uh, go ha ha ha. Uh, Sam is traveling to a concert, so I will be home all alone, and I would like to laugh. Um, we'll probably do a little Q&A on the Twitter this afternoon, later this evening. Um, I, I'm going to be heartbroken uh, that she won't be at the house, so we will keep things, uh, keep me entertained on the internet. Ain't that right, babe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How will I survive? I honestly have no clue. This is the first week where I've been able to sleep at home here for four nights in a row. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to live with Sam not home. But we will survive. I will survive. Hey, hey. Uh, Big thanks to everybody that joined the show today. You're the absolute greatest. Ty Schmidt, play some independent music.